All right, looks like everyone's here, so we'll get started. Um, today, Acts, and then we'll spend uh, quite a long time going through the writings of Paul. You know, it's, it's really not fair that uh, we spend, uh, what do we spend, one week? I guess we did Isaiah in two weeks, um, 66 chapters. Jeremiah we did in, in just one Bible study. And if we were to condense all the writings of Paul into one book, well, to be fair, we should uh, devote that same period of time. But... There's uh, obviously so much good stuff there that uh, we'll spend most of the rest of the year on Paul. So let's pray as we begin today. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity again to um, think about you. Help us to quiet our minds again and to um, concentrate on you, to see your goodness. Help us to learn from the experience of the early church. Uh, It would seem the first time since we've been doing this Bible study that your people uh, for a while really seemed to get it right and to get the message out. Help us to learn from that experience, and we pray that that will happen in the world today as well. In your name we pray. Amen. So Acts uh, really should be called Luke-Acts, and it's often referred that way because it's the continuation of the book of Luke. And this book begins with the uh, ascension of Jesus, and we have to put a few more details together in other places, I found this little uh, tidbit here in 1 Corinthians about uh, the time after the resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, you know, have you ever wondered just why are so many details left out? Why don't we have a whole book of the sayings and the words that Jesus said after the resurrection? Uh, We know very little about what he said, but we read here in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was raised to life three days later, as written in the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to all 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 of his followers at once, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. And that's helpful again in dating a book like this. But Jesus appeared to lots of people after his resurrection and uh, was um, convincing to many of them that, uh, yes, he actually had been raised. And so an Acts opens up that for 40 days after his death, he appeared to them many times in ways that proved beyond doubt that he was alive. They saw him and he talked with them about the kingdom of God. Now, this is what I find just unbelievable. He talked to them about the kingdom of God. Well, what had he told them thus far about the kingdom of God? We spent a long time talking about what he said about the kingdom of God. And he said things like, well, the greatest in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. And you remember how many times he told them, my kingdom is not what you expect. The kingdom of God is where the the stronger serves the weaker. The strongest came. I mean, God came in human form, the strongest. And he came not to be served, but to serve. God's kingdom is night and day different from what we think about when we think of a kingdom of power or a kingdom of the world. So he'd say the kingdom of God is within you. Again, he did not come to establish a power over authoritarian kingdom. And he would say in John 18, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. My kingdom is not of this world. So when it says in Acts 1 verse 3 that he talked to them about the kingdom of God, don't you think he re-emphasized these things about the kingdom? This is the nature of his kingdom. And so, as they go out, and he's about to be brought back up to heaven, um, here was the send-off that the disciples gave him. Lord, 
Will you at this time give the kingdom back to Israel? Or the contemporary English version says, Lord, are you now going to give Israel its own king again? Um, Do you see the mindset again? Which we are just stuck, I think, in that same kind of a mindset. We want the kingdom of God to be like an earthly kingdom, a power over kingdom. And the disciples now, after the whole life of Jesus, I mean, he just washed their feet 40 days earlier and told them all these things about the kingdom of God. And then their parting words are, now can I sit at your right side? Now can we rule over the whole world? And uh, I mean, don't you think this is a little depressing as he's leaving? And this is their last question. And, um, you know, Jesus, of course, very gracious, said to them, well, the times and occasions are set by my Father's own authority and it is not for you to know when they will be. Isn't that kind of an evasive answer there? But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up to heaven and as they watched him, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So uh, some of us might be tempted to say, you know what, you never really got it. Uh, I'm out of here and just wait for the Holy Spirit. Then maybe you'll get some more light on all of this. But anyway, very kindly here, he goes back up to heaven. And again, they are still in the me first, can I rule in power mentality about the kingdom. Now, I think uh, this whole concept, it's, it's so critical because what happened to the church? I mean, we're going to talk about a period of incredible success for the church. Uh, the good news went throughout the world. But what happened? I mean, just follow the church into the dark ages. And what happened? The church became a power over kingdom of the world. After all this emphasis on my kingdom is not of this world. And uh, the church went about trying to evangelize the whole world with the sword. That's not at all what God's kingdom is like. And um, so coming back to John, which we talked about two weeks ago, uh, I find it very significant that the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he died, where we went through all of the last things that he said, but notice he said here in John 16, I have much more to tell you, but now it would be too much for you to bear. Um, Wouldn't you like to know what Jesus would like to have told them that was too much for them to bear? When, however, the Spirit comes, and we've emphasized this so much, what's the function of the Spirit? Who reveals the truth about God, he will lead you into all the truth. Wouldn't that kind of imply that the truth they really can't bear to hear fully is the truth about God? And he would go on here in John 16 to tell them, he just, he's got to get this out, they're not asking. And so he tells them very clearly, We made a big deal of this, but uh, I want to kind of get back to the the kingdom of the world idea. But he would say, I've been speaking to you in parables, but the time to give up parables has gone. And now he wants to tell them plainly about the Father. When that time comes, you will make your request to him in my own name, for I need make no promise to plead to the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. We spent a long time talking about this. I hope you were here. But other versions say, I make no promise to intercede with the Father for you. For the Father loves you himself. Doesn't that destroy our whole model? Jesus is not going to plead with the Father. He's not going to intercede with the Father. Well, we know why. The Father loves you himself. The whole mission of Jesus was to reveal, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one in heart, in character, in motive, in mind, in love. All right, and so the, the intercessor, 
is God. The substitute is God. The advocate with the Father is God. God is the one in between. And so, uh, again, we miss out on all of the other things that Jesus would like to have told us, but it was too much for them to bear. And uh, what would, I mean, if we were a disciple, all the things that we have struggled with in this Bible study, because the disciples were so blinded by the um, finding out where they would be in the niche of the temple of fame, where they would be at the right hand, left hand, about the kingdom of the world, that because they were so focused on this, on themselves, they didn't ask Jesus many questions. Uh, don't you wish that the disciples would have sat Jesus down and said, hey, um, you know, could you tell us about the flood? Did you really drown the whole world in the flood? Uh, was that you or the Father that sent the flood? Um, don't we wish that we'd have on record these kinds of conversations? Um, say, Jesus, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, did you really burn that whole city to the ground? Was that you or the Father? Um, what about the plagues, the firstborn children in Egypt? Um, those boys, had they done anything wrong? Was it the only way? Did you really open up the earth and swallow Kor, Dathan, and Abiram? Uh, why did Uzzah have to be struck down for touching the ark? Uh, did you really hold the sun still so that more fighting and killing could go on? Why all the commands to wipe out entire cities and children? Um, don't we wish that they had had the opportunity? I mean, Paul would say that the one who went with the children of Israel through the desert was the Son of God. It was Jesus, God of the Old Testament, um, that's Jesus all the way through. And uh, we've, we've spent so much time in this Bible study trying to explain all of those stories. And I like to think what Jesus would have said. I mean, I think just with the flood, uh, maybe he would have said, hey, let's go back and read that story. What does it say? Three times, Noah was the only righteous man. I was down to one man. Now, what would have happened? I mean, I gave that one man, the last friend I had, a message which he preached for over 100 years. No one responded. I knew no one would respond, otherwise I would have built 50 boats for all the people that wanted to get in. But no one would respond. Everyone was evil. And so the flood, I had to get my last friend out and, uh, hey, disciples, uh, think about it for a minute. Had I not sent the flood um, and the last good man died, what do you think would have happened to planet Earth? Totally disconnected from God, not one person in relationship with God? Do you think we'd be here today? I mean, uh, I wish we had those kinds of conversations. I think we need to think about perhaps what Jesus would have said, but their focus on the kingdom of the world and a kingdom of power, selfish focus, prevented them from asking these questions that we would love to hear Jesus explain. So again, I think the mindset, uh, well, I notice it uh, in myself, in my Christian experience for years, this um, Hmm, the kingdom, that uh, the, the mindset is often, boy, it'll be great when Jesus comes back and we can go to heaven. Believe me, I'm looking forward to going to heaven more than, I mean, as much as any of you. But uh, uh, is there a little bit of danger in that? Are we just here hanging around waiting to die until we can go to heaven? And uh, there isn't much of a purpose or focus in life. Um, I think I would view the world this way. Here's a very busy emergency room. And I think our world is like one big hospital, one big emergency room with very sick, spiritually sick people in this world. Um, how many people have a true knowledge of God? How many people would you say are settled into the truth that God is just as gracious and kind and loving and forgiving as Jesus? 
Um, don't we live in a world where people are spiritually very sick? And so I think our motivation, I mean, yes, uh, going to heaven, spectacular. I mean, uh, wonderful. But when we live in such a chaotic, sick world, uh, I think we have a remedy. We have a healing remedy for our sick world, and that is the good news about who our God is. And so just like a physician here, you've got this remedy. Um, don't you want to be able to um, spread it around? Don't you want it to heal people who uh, are, are so sick and suffering? So our motivation, first and foremost, I think, should be just like Jesus, who came, descended from heaven, uh, and came, lived among us to reveal the truth, um, so that there would be healing and to, that more and more people would be joined up and in relationship with God again. And uh, I find it interesting, if we can just go back to the Gospels here for just a minute, that after Jesus told the story of the, uh, the foolish virgins, and you remember some of them, they fell asleep, and then uh, there was a delay, and then he told this story about the servants who were given coins. And some were given 10,000 and 5,000 and 2,000. And you remember that uh, some made good use of it. And they doubled, they tripled their profits. And the description of the one, this is describing the people who uh, perhaps people in the church and what have they done with their talents. And the last one, the servant who'd received 1,000 coins came in and said, Sir, I know you are a hard man. You reap harvests where you did not plant, and you gather crops where you did not scatter seed. I was afraid, so I went off and hid your money in the ground. Look, here is what belongs to you. Uh, notice the one who did nothing. Uh, the mindset, and I think very revealing, I know you are a hard man. Um, is God a hard man? Well, this was the, uh, the attitude of the person who did nothing with the knowledge of God, with the talents that were given to him. He's afraid of God. Uh, he did nothing. And so to this man, you bad and lazy servant, his master said, you knew, did you, that I reap harvests where I did not plant and gather crops where I did not scatter seed? Well, then you should have deposited my money in the bank and I would have received it all back with interest when I returned. Now take the money away from him and give it to the one who has 10,000 coins. Now again, this is a parable. We don't make 50 points of doctrine out of a parable. But notice, as we read on, then the king will say to the people on his right, Come, you that are blessed by my father. Come and possess the kingdom which has been prepared for you ever since the creation of the world. Now, here's the description of the people who made use of their talents. I was hungry, and you fed me. Thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you received me in your homes. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. In prison, and you visited me. So, the the people waiting for God when he returns, the people who are multiplying their talents, uh, notice the activities that they are involved in. And I certainly think this does apply to people who are really hungry and people who are really thirsty. But I think also, certainly, there's a spiritual application. Are there not people who are hungry spiritually? Is not Jesus the, the bread of life? And people that are thirsty. Revelation talks about Jesus being like a well of water. And so I think this, uh, certainly it applies to visiting prisoners and doing all those things, um, but there are also people in spiritual prisons. And so I think the motivation is not just to hang around and wait to die and we go to heaven, but no, it is the, the motivation is to be the, the hands of Christ, 
to reach out to the world. And so coming back to our doctor analogy here, we've got a, this is a doctor's call room. And uh, again, the, the people, I, I like the metal, medical analogy here. We have a healing remedy for a sick, dying world where people do not know God. And um, so if, if our mentality is, well, we're just waiting for God to come back, imagine a doctor here in a call room. And uh, let's say the parallel with going to heaven is waiting until the morning when you can go home to your family. And uh, so you've got all these hundreds of patients down in the emergency room who are sick and suffering. And it's two in the morning. Oh, I can hardly wait to go home and uh, back to sleep. Now it's three in the morning. You look at your watch, a few more hours and go home. Four in the morning, five in the morning. Uh, Meanwhile, there is all of this uh, chaos uh, down in the emergency room. So uh, again, we are to be active in the world. And that's why I'm so encouraged, at least in talking with medical students who are interested in all of this, because what you are all going into is a service-oriented field. You are uh, being driven out into the area where people come to you not only sick with physical problems, but those people also are suffering in many other ways. And it's a great opportunity to, uh, to reach people with the message. So anyway, uh, we have to come to this uh, spectacular thing, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What really happened? Let's read the description. When the day of Pentecost came, all the believers were gathered together in one place. And uh, they'd been there for some time. And I like to kind of imagine what were they talking about. Uh, Do you think uh, they were talking about, um, uh, man, he washed our feet the night before he died. Isn't that amazing? the humility of Christ. I don't know. They were discussing that, you know what, that really was God that was walking around with us. Um, I wonder if some of them said, you know what, uh, that night the only one that left the upper room with dirty feet was Jesus. Why didn't we wash his feet? We really, uh, we blew it there. But anyway, they were talking for a long time and then uh, this happened. Suddenly there was a noise from the sky which sounded like a strong wind blowing and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they saw what looked like tongues of fire which spread out and touched each person there. And of course, fire is always literal in the Bible, so these tongues of fire came down and no, listen to what the fire did. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to talk in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, religious people who had come from every country in the world. When they heard this noise, a large large crowd gathered. They were all excited because all of them heard the believers talking in their own language. Notice the speaking in tongues was the for the purpose of clarification of the message so everyone could understand. In amazement and wonder, they exclaimed, these people who are talking like this are Galileans. How is it then that all of us hear them speaking in our own native language? Okay, and we see the importance. Why did everyone need to understand? Look at all the people that were gathered there. We are from Parthia, Media, Elam, from Mesopotamia, from Judea, Uh, Cappadocia, from Pontus, from Asia, from Phrygia, Pamphylia, from Egypt, the regions of Libya near Cyrene. Some of us are from Rome, both Jews and Gentiles converted to Judaism. And some of us are from Crete and Arabia. They were all there. They all understood. Yet all of us hear them speaking in our own language. And notice what it was that they were hearing about the great things that God had done. Amazed and confused, they kept asking, what does this mean? But others made fun of the believers, saying, these people are drunk. Okay, but they all heard this clear message, and what they were hearing was uh, great things that God had done. And we'll try to expand on 
uh, what it was and specifics that they were hearing. Now, uh, we've been through the function of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this when we went through Zechariah, but I think we just have to come back again and again. Paul would mention so many times the function of the Holy Spirit. But right here in John, Jesus would say, I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another helper who will stay with you. He's the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. And uh, I just think as those disciples thought about it, uh, that the truth about God, the Holy Spirit was really convicting them and they were becoming more fully and more fully and more fully settled into the fact that God really is just as Jesus revealed him to be. The hell helper will come, the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. There it is again, who comes from the Father. I'll send him to you from the Father. He will speak about me. And you too will speak about me because you have been with me from the very beginning. So I think they were really convicted about this message, about who God is, and that the Holy Spirit convicted them of that. And notice, uh, after they receive that knowledge, you too will speak about me. And Paul would say about the Holy Spirit, God has poured out his love into our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit. I mean, God is love personified. And that message was poured out on them by the Holy Spirit. So the result was spectacular. Many of them believed his message and were baptized. And we left out the, the sermon of Peter. But about 3,000 people were added to the group that day. They spent their time in learning from the apostles, taking part in the fellowship and sharing in the fellowship meals and the prayers. So there was a great conversion, 3,000 people in a day. Now, we read about this community and uh, here's what's really amazing. They, they seem to turn completely away from kingdom of the world mentality because look at their actions. All who believed were together and held everything in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Does that not sound like uh, the kingdom of God? They're just they're giving up everything. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. Notice that when the church, I mean the collection of God's friends, when they really began to represent the kingdom, giving all for the kingdom, putting everything into it, turning away from the me first, selfish, kingdom of the world kind of mentality that the Lord was adding to their number every day had a, an incredible result. And if we just, in one minute, go through the history of this Bible study, it's been kind of uh, sad, our response. I mean, uh, how many good times have there been in the Bible up to this point in terms of, yes, the kingdom of God, boy, we really see that in the book of Amos, or it really came through in the book of Judges. Um, boy, we just go through after the creation, everything just went downhill. Um, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the tower of Babel. You know, we wonder why the Old Testament is so difficult. It's, it's such a dark, disturbing backdrop for God to even intervene in what was going on. Um, very difficult. And even someone like Abraham, who was a friend of God. But notice this verse in Joshua 24. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor lived on the other side of the Euphrates rivers and served other gods. Um, man, down, 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 worse, worse, worse. And then finally God had a friend, Abraham. 
But some of you might remember, we've talked about Isaac and Jacob and Judah, Lion of Judah. And these people had, um, well, how shall we put it politely, but uh, they, there were a lot of disturbing things about the lives of these people. And um, of course, things went downhill. They're in bondage. Moses leads them out. They went through the 40 years wandering. And were they a strong group of people that represented the truth about God, never grumbled to complain, per- perfectly trusting, a light to the world? I mean, look at the, the story that we talked about in those 40 years wandering. And then Joshua, before he died, would give a sermon to these people, just as they're about ready to take over the whole land. And Joshua said, Honor the Lord, serve him sincerely and faithfully. Get rid of the gods which your ancestors used to worship in Mesopotamia and Egypt. If he's telling them to get rid of them, doesn't that mean they still have them? And serve only the Lord. If you're not, decide to will serve. All right, so there's still... Uh, not a pure group of people that are really committed to God. Get rid of those gods, please. And then Judges, what has been called the worst book in the Bible, the Levite and the concubine, um, all the fighting and killing. I mean, that's, um, it, it's amazing that God even stuck with those people when you consider what was going on. Saul, of course, we know about the life of Saul. David, now there was a bright period of time, briefly, uh, but then after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, uh, then there was uh, uh, Absalom, of course, uh, then took over the throne for a period of time. And so that was a dark time. Solomon, of course, here was, there was an opportunity here, an incredible opportunity. But then uh, we know what happened to Solomon and his foolish decision to serve other gods even to serve the cruel gods who would demand child sacrifice for a period of time. He returned, yes, but his foolish decision led to the splitting of the kingdoms. And so we've spent a lot of time last year in the Bible study talking about the kingdoms of Judah, the kingdom of Israel, as they split, and how there wasn't a single good king of Israel, and how this, there were a few good kings of Judah, but not many, a few bright spots, but as a whole, God was never really truly represented as he was. The kingdom was not represented. And then the ten northern tribes are off to captivity. We have only the kingdom of Judah left. And we have Manasseh, who was such a brutal king. And all the way down here to finally uh, the Babylonian captivity. It's just darker, 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 worse, worse, worse. And this, this was supposed to be the people that would be the light to the world. And so we've discussed uh, during this year's Bible study about Cyrus telling the people, okay, you can return. And the people went back and they didn't want to rebuild the temple. So God had to give more prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, please rebuild the temple. Come on, guys. And uh, so they did it. Uh, But then Esther, the book of Esther, describes the people that didn't really care enough even to go back to rebuild the temple. They stayed behind, but God was still with them. And then Ezra and Nehemiah, and I was thinking, I wish we'd have time to talk about this, but as the people again began intermarrying with other nations and began intermixing with foreign gods, Nehemiah had to come around and lock the doors to keep the people in during the Sabbath so that they would obey. And he had to rip the beards out of the men so that they would not marry other women. And again, rebellion, rebellion, all the way through. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi starts out with this uh, very sad verse. God saying, I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really, how have you loved us? And that's the last book of the Old Testament. 
And so we wonder why God looks so bad in the Old Testament. Well, um, I think he took an incredible risk mixing with such a rebellious people, but he stuck with them. And now finally, we have a time in the Bible where the people seem briefly to be united on the message and really living out the kingdom. It's, it's a bright moment in the Bible. So Jesus came, revealed the truth, which ultimately led to this incredible experience. And then, of course, well, uh, there were the Dark Ages. So it lasted for a period of time. But I think this is helpful as we try to understand the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So a little bit more. Peter and John are going around, and of course they're being persecuted. Jesus was persecuted, so were they. And they were speaking to the people when some priests, the officer in charge of the temple guards, and some Sadducees arrived. Remember the Sadducees are the people, their Bible was the five books of Moses. And you don't find the resurrection there, so they did not believe in the resurrection. And they were annoyed because the two apostles were teaching the people that Jesus had risen from death. And of course, no one comes back from death, which proved that the dead will rise to life. Again, they were opposed to that. So they arrested them and put them in jail. Now, the members of the council were amazed to see how bold Peter and John were and to learn that they were ordinary men of no education, fishermen. They realized then that they had been companions of Jesus. And I love this uh, little part here because uh, we like to quote in Corinthians, by beholding you become changed. And um, these men who beheld, lived with Jesus for such a long period of time, um, notice they now have a total new heart, new mind, and it was obvious to anyone looking at them, hey, these are new people. And if they realized that they had been companions of Jesus, wouldn't that mean that they are now taking on features of his character? They're living in that way. They're speaking in that way. And so they called them back in and told them that under no conditions were they to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, you yourselves judge which is right in God's sight to obey you or to obey God. For we cannot stop speaking of what we ourselves have seen and heard. And this, what we have seen and heard, this is Peter and John saying, what had they seen and heard? And first John would open up describing what they had seen and heard. And I think this is what they were telling people. First John 1 John 1.1 We write to you about the word of life, which has existed from the very beginning. We have heard it. We have seen it with our eyes. Yes, we have seen it and our hands have touched it. When this life became visible, we saw it. So we speak of it and tell you about the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made known to us. What we have seen and heard, there it is again, we announce to you also, so that you will join with us in the fellowship that we have with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this in order that our joy may be complete. Now the message, the message that we have heard from his Son and announce is this. God is light and there is no darkness at all in him. I think we really didn't believe that until God came in human form. And if God really is just like Jesus, there's no darkness in him. He is light. He is goodness through and through. He's love personified. I think that is the message that was breaking out on the world at this time. That is the good news. That is the gospel. Paul would describe it this way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For notice, for in it, in the gospel, 
Something is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The goodness of God, the character of God. The, the gospel is ultimately not a message about us, but it is a message about God. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, what is it that stimulates our trust in God? Love awakens love. I mean, when we see God as he is, uh, we trust him naturally. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the message that was going out, the good news message, uh, was a message ultimately about who God is. And the book of Acts, several times, would just refer to this, what this good news was. Every day in the temple and in people's homes, they continued to teach and preach the good news, which notice is about a person, the good news about Jesus. And Philip would speak. He told them the good news about Jesus. There are so many of these. I just listed two as an example. It's important we equate the good news with a person. We often want to add on, well, it's because of the person paying the penalty. Well, we'll, we'll get into to some of these uh, verses in Paul, but the good news is ultimately about our God, what he's like in character. And so Paul, later on in Acts, would say, but I reckon my own life to be worth nothing to me. I only want to complete my mission. Now, it's interesting. Jesus said this as well in John 17, where he said, I have completed the mission you gave me to do. And Paul would say, I only want to complete my mission. Was Paul's mission different than the mission of Jesus? And to finish the work that the Lord Jesus gave me to do. Jesus, when he described his mission, he said, I fulfilled the mission you gave me to do. And in John uh, 17, verse 6, he said, I've revealed your name. I've revealed your character. That that was his mission. Okay, what is Paul considered to be his mission and his work? And so he would say, which is to declare the good news about the grace of God. And I like the God's word translation, the good news of God's kindness. Good news about who God is. Good news about his graciousness, his kindness. Um, that was the mission of Paul. Okay, so when they finished praying, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to proclaim God's message with boldness. The group of believers was one in mind and heart. None of them said that any of their belongings were their own, but they all shared with one another everything they had. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God poured rich blessings on them all. There was no one in the group who was in need. Those who owned fields or houses would sell them, bring the money received from the sale, and turn it over to the apostles, and the money was distributed according to the needs of the people. Um, isn't that a, a wonderful model here that the, the early church uh, began? But of course, boy, we, we can't go through a book of the Bible without uh, a challenging story. And here we go, Ananias and Sapphira. So everything is going so well, and then two people drop dead. So let's understand here. We're kind of back to uh, here Old Testament stories and we want to understand why did Ananias and Sapphira die? Uh, why are these methods uh, still being used here after the resurrection? Well, we need to go back a few verses because we read, we're reading about all these people. They're giving up everything. And one of, those, uh, one of the men who was doing that, his name was Joseph. He was one of the followers who had sold a piece of property and brought the money to the apostles. He was a Levite from Cyprus, and the apostles called him Barnabas, which means one who encourages others. So the practice was uh, people are giving up everything for the spread of the message. 
But there was also a man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount. His wife had agreed to do this, uh, had agreed to this deception. And then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. Now, how do you apply this? If you um, sell something, piece of property, what if you gave only half to the church today? Maybe you go to Loma Linda University Church. You sell a property for 100000 You give 50000 to the church. Um, would you drop dead? Um, how, how do we understand why this would happen? Well, let's read on. The property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, this was the price. And Peter said, How could the two of you even think of doing a thing like this, conspiring together to test the spirit of the Lord? Just outside that door are the young men who buried your husband, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and all others who heard what had happened. And so um, the, the difficult stories are not just in the Old Testament. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, what to do with a story like this? Um, it's interesting, this never happened when Jesus was walking around. Um, he never said what Peter did, and no one dropped dead here in the presence of Jesus. Um, figs and pigs, those are the two violent uh, miracles of Jesus. The fig tree wilted and the pigs jumped off the cliff. But um, anyway, what, uh, what was the point here of Ananias and Sapphira? A difficult story. Well, uh, just keep reading. Anytime you come to a difficult story, keep reading. All right? Because as you read on, you'll discover that um, the other people, even though people admired them a lot, speaking of this new movement, outsiders were wary about joining them. And if you just watched Ananias and Sapphira being drug out of the building, you might be a little wary to be a part of that group. On the other hand, those who put their trust in the master were added right and left, men and women both. And uh, one other verse to round this out, through the help of the Holy Spirit, it was strengthened and grew in numbers as it lived in reverence for the Lord. And uh, I think, um, again, yes, a very challenging story, but what happened to this early church? It really didn't last that long. What wasn't there uh, eventually this mixing of those who were trying to live the kingdom way and it finally got taken over by a kingdom of the world organization. And so uh, what I think happened here is that um, this attitude that wanted to stop the movement so early, that wanted to block what with the, all the good things that were happening, that God wanted this, you know, it, it has to last just a little bit longer. We need to get this good news throughout the world. And if the Ananias and Sapphira's are all coming into the church, it's just going to destroy the message. And so I think 
God intervened, not because of the severity of the sin. And I think that's a key point. Uh, would we say that uh, the sin of um, um, insert any mass murderer, child molester, worst person you can think of, that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira only giving half the money exceeds the sin and the guilt of um, you know, all of those other individuals. No, it was not the severity of the sin. And I think as we go through every single instance in the Old Testament, it is not God saying, boy, you've crossed a line, I've got to punish. It is rather God intervening for the purpose of ultimately um, so that the message could get out for healing, for restoration, for protection frequently. And uh, of course, I don't like the ends justifies the means argument because Ananias and Sapphira will arise in the resurrection, same character, same train of thought, same ability to respond to truth and evidence. And so um, God has had to intervene not for the purpose of punishment, but for the purpose of, the, you know, again, in this case, trying to preserve the message. What were the results? When Paul and Silas would travel to a town, their reputation had preceded them. And the people, they were described as the people who've been turning the whole world upside down have come here now. They really did turn the whole world upside down. And uh, when we went through Bible translation, if you'll recall, I mentioned the incredible spread of ancient versions. I mean, this is way before, obviously, English or Luther wrote his Bible. But the Bible was translated, look, all the way down, Persian, Chinese, Ethiopian. Uh, the message really did go throughout the entire world. And some of the best evidence for that is just that you've got Bibles translated way, way back uh, during this time. So it was successful. Now, um, I'm going to say this in about three minutes because I know we're late on time, but we just have to make a point here about the incredible conversion of Paul um, since we're going to spend all this time on the writings of Paul. And uh, I won't read the story, but of course you'll remember that when Stephen was stoned to death that the witnesses left their cloaks in the care of a young man named Saul. And Saul's occupation as a Pharisee was to persecute the early Christian church. And uh, of course when... Uh, Stephen died, do you remember? He said, almost like Jesus, who said, Father, forgive them. And Stephen, same attitude as he was being stoned to death. And I think that really uh, struck a chord with Saul. But Saul approved of his murder. And that very day, the church in Jerusalem began to suffer cruel persecution. And as you read on here, Saul really tried to destroy the church. He was hunting them down. And um, we've mentioned so many times that Saul outwardly had such a good list. I mean, he had the same Old Testament that we do, that he was reading. He was going to church. He was paying his tithes and offerings. He kept the Sabbath. He was very devoted to the law. And was he involved in mission work? Yes, his mission work was persecuting the early Christians. But if we, if we just consider here that um, what happened, and Paul would describe it later on, and just listen to the description of his conversion experience. I myself thought that I should do everything I could against the cause of Jesus of Nazareth. That is what I did in Jerusalem. I received authority from the chief priests and put many of God's people in prison. And when they were sentenced to death, I also voted against them. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues and tried to make them deny their faith. I was so furious with them that I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. It was for this purpose that I went to Damascus with authority and orders from the chief priests 
It was on the road at midday, your majesty, that I saw a light much brighter than the sun coming from the sky and shining around me and the men traveling with me. All of us fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You are hurting yourself by hitting back like an ox kicking against its owner's stick. And I like uh, the Amplified Version to keep offering vain and perilous resistance. I think he was moved by the way Stephen died and how he forgave his enemies as he died. I think he heard the story about how Jesus forgave his enemies as he died. I think that was working on his conscience. He's fighting back. And in his fighting back, he's killing more of the Christians. Why are you fighting back? And Paul, Saul, would say, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus, who you persecute. What changed on the Damascus road was not the the list for Paul, but what really changed was his picture of God. I mean, his picture of God was certainly not anything like Jesus. Okay, and so he still kept this same list, but I think he read his Bible in a new way. I think he looked at everything in an entire new light. It is the paradigm shift we all need to experience, I think, which is to see God through the lens of Jesus Christ, and you'll notice that Paul also never used those methods again. Did he ever hunt down people who disagreed that Jesus was Lord? Did he try to throw them in prison? Um, No, those kinds of kingdom power over methods are not part of the kingdom of God. And so not only did his picture of God changed, but his picture of the kingdom and the way the kingdom operates changed as well. So next time uh, we'll start with Romans and we'll spend probably two weeks on Romans. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a clear example, uh, just wonderful really, how this good news went out during this time. And um, we know that if you're pouring out of the Holy Spirit, that it will have at its heart a message about God's goodness and love and character. And so we pray that more and more people would internalize this message about who you are and that once again a great message, a great light would go throughout the world. In your name we pray, amen.